Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. What do we even call you, Paul Wells? What, what, what do you do these days? Author and pundit. Author and pundit and new new hire of the Toronto Star, if I'm not mistaken. I am. I'm two weeks away from starting with those guys. All right. Well, we're going to talk today about, uh, can we call it something other than Elbowgate? I don't know, the Elbow Affair. Is there some other, we're going to talk about Elbowgate. I'm really sorry about that. We're going to talk about Kevin O'Leary. Wow. I, I have lots to apologize for and we haven't even gotten started. <laughs> and we're going to talk about opera. So the hits just keep coming. Paul Wells, welcome back to Canada Land Shortcuts. Always good to be here. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by J.P. Robichaud, Stu Brown, Dan Levy, A. Alfred Ayash, Brendan Kennedy, Russell Gregg, Brian Burt, and Gary Lovett. Gary, why did you decide to be awesome? Because as I get older, I have less tolerance for mainstream media bullshit, and I appreciate the work and the honesty that goes into Canada land. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. You're in between gigs, Paul. 
maybe you can appreciate the usefulness of a, of a tool like FreshBooks? I sure could. I mean, if things turn out badly in the next two weeks and I have to freelance, I'll be all over it. It could be the best thing that ever happens to you. I, I'm telling you, it's the tool of choice for accounting, for invoicing, not just for people between jobs, but for people starting their own businesses, running their successful freelance careers. FreshBooks makes everything a lot easier. It will save you time. I got to tell you, this is true. It saves me hours and hours of time every week. It gets you paid quicker. It is very simple to use. And you can see for yourself because it's free to use. You can try it out for free for 30 days. Try out their mobile app. Try it for time tracking. Try it for invoice reporting. Try it for sending beautiful looking invoices. Go to freshbooks.com. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them who sent you. This episode is also brought to you by casper.com. And I haven't talked about Casper mattresses in a while, and I was worried. I enjoyed my Casper mattress so much when I first told you about it. Mattresses sometimes aren't as good months into it. I'm happy to report, Paul, that I still love my Casper mattress. Well, it's, it's, that's important. It is a good way to avoid the high markup of these big mattress concerns and their huge showrooms, which you're paying for when you buy a mattress from them. Casper provides an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's got just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. It's a risk-free trial and return policy. They just ship it to you, Paul, in a box. You cut into the plastic and voomp, you got it. You could try it out for free for 100 days. If you don't like it, they just take it away. It is made in America, but I will tell you this, it is cheaper than inferior mattresses that you could buy in these big stores. $7.25 Canadian for a twin, $12.75 for a king-size mattress. That's a good price for a mattress that's this comfortable. Go to casper.com slash CanadaLand. Have a look at that. They made up their own little site for us, casper.com slash CanadaLand, and use the offer code CanadaLand at checkout. You will get $50 towards a mattress purchase. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone. 
around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Elbowgate. 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 Total fucking nonsense was my initial reaction when this broke. It wasn't called Elbowgate. There was just all these tweets about some kerfuffle. And I watched the footage of it. And I tweeted something about how, like, I'd love to give you a hot take, but there's a good episode of Paw Patrol on right now, which was a joke because everyone knows that there's never been a good episode of Paw Patrol. And then, like, I woke up the next morning, Paul, and that's what it was called, Elbowgate. I don't take credit for that. Other people were calling it Elbowgate, but we were not creative in naming this thing. And... I think the general response from the public is almost instantly that they were sick of the media's fixation on this and how they couldn't avoid hearing about it. And I know that on Parker Donham's blog, contrarian.ca, he wrote that the media, the press gallery was wildly out of step with the Canadian public, that people just don't care about this. What do you think? Was it important? Did we make too much of it? Probably, but there's uh, exculpating circumstances. First of all, to some extent, if the House of Commons vanishes up its own ass, we have to cover that. And... uh, (laughs) Parker's thesis is that no outrage at what the prime minister did can be permitted because he's such a lovely guy and he's surrounded by scoundrels. And fine, that's a legitimate point of view. It doesn't happen to be mine. I've actually, for my sins, been in this town for 21 years covering politicians. I have never seen a prime minister kind of get up and physically organize the House of Commons personnel according to his pleasure. That's actually unprecedented in my experience. So, I'm allowed to say, hey, guy, don't do that, you know, but then a process begins and the process, which I commented on the next day, uh, entailed a fair amount of crocodile tear delivery on every side of the House of Commons, you know, the sort of odd silence as the MPs contemplated the horrific nature of what they had seen. I gave about seven or eight of them a chance in the debate that happened the next day to get up and say, you know, maybe we're laying it on a bit thick, but they wouldn't do it. But at that point, there's a process underway. And the process, I'm afraid to say, is not done. The prime minister has been, uh, his case has been shunted off to some parliamentary committee, which will be holding anguished testimony. And, and, and in the nature of things, I suspect a lot of news organizations are going to cover that too. That's not necessarily us weighing in on the propriety of the thing. It's just the damnedest thing is happening at the House of Commons and we're going to have reporters there. I take your point. I mean, even before we get into the uh, NDP's reaction or the media's reaction, the event itself, just to see the prime minister, the head of the Canadian government, throw this temper tantrum and and see that Gordon Brown is having trouble getting to his seat because the NDP and say, I'm going to do something about this. And he stomps over it. Move aside. Get the fuck out of my way. Like... And then, you know, uh, Ruth Ellen Brousseau's boob is sort of a accidental casualty. And apparently that hurts really bad, I'm told. Yes, I, I, I too must take expert testimony on the matter, but yes. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll believe that, absolutely. But, you know, that is not so cool that he did that. And whether you want to wag your finger at him or just point out that, like, that's never happened before, because that's your job to point out strange things that happened in Parliament, that seems like fair game. I think that the public's response was just about how the media made such a media out of it, and that was nowhere better in evidence than in Hamilton Spectator's editorial, where um, following the Beaverton writing a satirical piece about how, in exaggeration of your point that the NDP, the Beaverton wrote, they showed up in neck braces and arm slings the next day, and the Hamilton Spectator thought that was true. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like who's finger wagging who, because the Hamilton Spectator said, well, the NDP really didn't need to make such a meal out of it as to show up in neck braces. Yes. And then when that was pointed out by Joey Coleman, they removed that without any correction listed. So, 
it's a very silly thing that spawned a lot of silly things and had all sorts of uh, reverberations. I'm busy sort of second guessing our actions. Incidentally, I hate to refer to the press gallery as us and our. I mean, it's a bunch of individuals with different reactions, but I'm justifying my own writing and some other people's writing. But I will note that some of my colleagues were a little more careless. Michael Dentant at the National Post was one of them. He uh, quickly declared that this would lead to a rapid decline in the liberal support in the polls. That decline in the support of the polls has, has actually been pretty slow to show up. You yeah. know? And I can explain what happened in the polls or what didn't happen in the polls. I regret the instinct to declare that such and such is going to lead to a, a, any change in the polls. It actually is in our business to handicap next week polls. But on the other hand, I get a little peeved when people come up to us later and say, ha, the polls haven't moved. You've wasted your energy. No, 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 no. I'm in the business of <laughs> describing what happens in the House of Commons and goddamn the polls. They move up, yeah. they move down, whatever. I judge these things by my own lights and uh, I, I didn't think the Prime Minister had a good day, but I think the opposition spent the next morning carefully blowing up their own credibility. Wasting the opportunity, perhaps, by over overplaying their hand, I guess. A lot of people just saw it as a wash, you know? And, yeah. And to the extent that some people like the Prime Minister better than any of them, he was the only guy delivering some kind of reflex, unconsidered response. Like What the NDP was doing is the sort of thing that Tom Mulcair does. It's the sort of thing that he learned in the appalling setting of the Quebec National Assembly, where Federalists never dare to say that they're just Federalists, so they keep thinking up weird gimmicks to advance their cause. And uh, he comes from the Quebec Liberal Party, where making a show of blocking the conservative whip, who for all we know may have been in on the theater. Mm -hmm. Like, that's how weird things were. And then Justin Trudeau, who used to be a bouncer in a bar, gets up and pushes some people around. And even some people who wish he wouldn't do that, I think the reaction was, well, at least, at least one guy uh, wasn't reading a script. My reaction was, don't do that. And some people's reaction was, look, in a weird place, people do weird things, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I think that was the the intent of his action was like, look, I'm the leader and I'm going to take control. Enough of this silliness, you guys. Get the fuck out of my way. Let's let's get back to work here. And I don't know, he just can't pull that off or he didn't pull it off or maybe because the boob got elbowed, it didn't work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I really think, I mean, I, and I'm borrowing from Jason Kenney here. I think it was actually a bit of an insight. It really is the kind of thing you do if you have spent some time being a bouncer in a bar. You're not really that interested in parsing the fine details of what's going on. You just need people to not be in the place they are because them being where they are is causing trouble and you, and you deal with stuff later, right? <laughs> and so I think that the bouncer thing came back for the prime minister. I like this theory that we should, we should you know, rethink Trudeau as a guy who's just sort of hardwired to act like a bouncer in a bar. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not consistent with my, okay. He, he has, however, emerged from this as intact or maybe even better than before. And there's actually a point where I feel like he, he probably should get dinged beyond the hissy fit. And this has to do with something that came to our attention. I really want to get your thoughts on this. We got an email here from somebody who works at a talk radio station in a, in a mid-market Canadian city, didn't want us to use his name, and said, look, this might be of interest to you. We have tried at this talk radio station to get the, the prime minister in for an interview. All of our interview requests to the PMO get rejected. And then we get an unsolicited email from the PMO. Mm -hmm. It's from a press secretary we've never heard from before. And it says, just FYI. If your station is looking for a pundit to discuss yesterday's events in the House of Commons, I know that Amanda Alvaro will be available today. Yeah. And then they provide Amanda Alvaro's email address, which is not a PMO or government or liberal party email address. It is linked to her 
pomp and circumstance PR firm, yet the PMO is suggesting her to media. And the person who sent this to us felt that was weird and said, you know, everybody here was really uncomfortable with it, but our management said, you're going to put her on, no questions asked. And they actually introduced her on the air as a liberal spokesperson, which is not actually accurate because when we got Amanda Alvaro on the phone, we said, are you a liberal spokesperson? And she answered in the darndest way. She said, yes, I've been a liberal spokesperson in the past. Yes. And we're just trying to get some clarity. We're outsiders to your world, Paul, of pundits and these fine distinctions between editorial pundits from the journalistic world and then partisan pundits who are actually in the employ of different parties. And, you know, it seems that Amanda has been an employee of the Liberal Party in the past, but not the government in particular. We had questions for her, but we also feel like, isn't this strange? And I just want to know, like, is that strange that the PMO is shopping around to media a friendly voice who is not actually officially connected to them in any kind of employer-employee way? My hunch, and it's only a hunch, is that this person at the PMO was cutting some corners and... Uh, assuming that things were widely known that aren't widely known, rather than fiendishly seeking to mislead. First of all, this should not be the prime minister's, the job of the prime minister's office. It should be the job of the liberal party. If her job is to make the liberal party look better, then that's a party function, not a government function. I know that this is a odd distinction and difficult for a lot of people outside Ottawa to follow. Believe me that it's, it's kind of a weird and, and hard to follow distinction, even in the Ottawa bubble. There was a day during Stephen Harper's government when the two top people in his communications office, Corey Tanaik and uh, Dimitri Soudis, they took a, a day off work so they could traipse over to the National Press Theatre and hold a press conference as conservative spokespeople. So these distinctions are fine and hard to follow. Just to try to like count the different distinctions, you could have a person who is a liberal, they're a member of the party. Yep. You could have a person who is a employee of the party. You could have a person who is an employee of the government, or you could have a independent voice who is not necessarily independent as, you know, when we think of a pundit and we think of like you or Andrew Coyne or somebody, yeah. I think it would surprise a lot of people to find out like, oh yeah. And then, you know, during elections, they work for that party. That's not true of that sort of pundit, Yeah, but we're focused here on, on the politicians and their behavior or the politically affiliated people. Mm -hmm. But these panel shows, do they do a, a great job of letting viewers know who they're hearing from in these panel discussions and who's paying them? I don't think that these distinctions are, are, are uh, sometimes drawn clearly enough. I mean, sometimes to my horror, I have shown up as a media guy, commentator, gunslinger for hire on a televised dinnertime political chat show and discovered that the lineup is person everyone on earth knows is a new Democrat, comma, person everyone on earth knows is a conservative, comma, and Paul Wells. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think, well, Jesus, why would you not think I'm a liberal in that setup? You know, and I, I try and get a better accounting of who's going to be showing up now than I used to, because that's not great. And then there are these sort of cloudy affiliations. My own wife, Lisa Sampson, who's in, uh, who will not be pleased to know that I <laughs> took her name in vain on a podcast, is a government relations person. She's in the kind of the same line of work that Amanda Alvaro is. She used to appear on TV every once in a while and talk for the Conservative Party of Canada. And that stopped actually about the time we began dating because it just got too weird for all concerned. But she was never paid by the Conservative Party of Canada. She was known to be sympathetic to the Conservatives and quick on her feet. So off she went to do some television every once in a while, you know. And maybe these things should be a little bit more clearly defined. Uh, Amanda Alvaro, when I see her on TV, I say liberal, you know, and most of the shows that I'm aware of, you know, basically Rosie Barton's and Don Martin's on CBC and CTV 
identify her as a as speaking for the Liberal Party. Rosie Barton's team confirmed to us that they did so during the election. I think that she appears in the, and it says pomp and circumstance PR firm uh, as, as her slug when she appears these days. When I think of Amanda Alvaro, one of the things that comes to mind is that she organized this Justin Unplugged Cocktails Candid Conversation Ladies Night. There was a part fundraiser, part get to know the women's vote thing for Justin Trudeau in, in 2013. That was a bit of an ill-fated uh, event, I think. Yeah. And, you know, what is the biggest issue facing women? What's your favorite uh, virtue? Who are your real life heroes? <laughs> I'm looking at the invitation card now. So Amanda Alvaro was one of the organizers for that. Okay. I note that you were supposed to RSVP to Mary Eng at mary at maryeng.com. That person is now the director of appointments in the prime minister's office. So Amanda Alvaro went off into private practice. The other co-organizer went into the prime minister's office. And you got to be fairly sharp to tell the difference. I think the point here is not to kind of try to describe and reveal some crazy web of conspiracy, but just to, like in the spirit of full disclosure, describe these connections, just as you're telling us about your wife and her affiliations, our own uh, at Canada Land uh, Commons host, Supriya Devetti. She is a registered lobbyist for Dying with Dignity, and, and she's affiliated with a couple of, of, of firms that do strategy, and we reveal all that on our disclosure page. So a lot of this is just that Ottawa is small. The number of jobs, like it is very natural for, for people to marry each other within this world, to move from one field directly covering politics to working within politics. I think that a lot of these confusions are, are uh, honest. I just think that in advocating for like the audience's right to know what the hell they're hearing, you know, because sometimes it can be abused and sometimes you can obscure where you're coming from and it, to political effect or personal gain. So we kind of need some law in the arena around this stuff, I would think. My own preference is that everyone just say who, who their horse is, what's, which side their bread is buttered on, or simply who would they prefer to have as uh, as the next prime minister, if nothing else. But that even that like suggests that their personal political affiliation or ideology is what's most important, whereas usually I think, you know, who's paying you is yeah. the big question question or who has paid you or who might pay you in the future, which is a harder one to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is more of a question for the media to, to sort out and to demand those kinds of disclosures. We'll get on it at the next meeting. Well, Paul, now is the time on our show as of last week where we note little things that came to our attention that maybe are not worth having a long hashed out conversation, but things that we just wish to duly note. It is time for duly noted. I would like to duly note a tweet which read, oh my God, Canadian media, can we just fucking credit each other with breaking stories, you petty monsters? <laughs> that was a tweet from uh, reporter Justin Ling of Vice with reference to CBC reporting that uh, Stephen Harper is going to be retiring from parliament and saying CBC has learned instead of saying as first reported by the Globe and Mail. Yeah. And this is something that I think only matters to journalists. I don't think anybody really gives a damn about who broke a story. And I think that sometimes, you know, news rating is clogged up enough with sort of these formal little conventions that you have to be in the business to appreciate that make the rating horrible to read. I'm not going to say that that needs to be in there every time that you've got to cite exactly who broke the story first, but to take credit for it yourself or to imply that you took credit for it. And CBC, as Justin Ling pointed out in subsequent tweets, is just awful at this. They, they act as if they are the only news organization in the country, and they will actually suggest that they broke stories that their colleagues broke. And that's something that I wanted to duly note. Duly noted. I would like to note that the New York Times did what I think should normally be the most reviled kind of story, which is a social media story. Here's something we saw on social media, but it was such a cute story. This lady in Texas uh, went to her local grocery store and came out with a mask of the Star Wars creature Chewbacca. And then speaking into her phone in the parking lot of the shopping center, 
announced that this was going to be her mask. It was not going to go to her kids. And then she put the Chewbacca mask on and laughed helplessly for several minutes and then posted the video on Facebook. That was last Friday. By Monday, it had 137 million views on Facebook. You don't got to <laughs> tell nobody. Everybody's seen this video. Well, this is it. And uh, I'm like the only guy in North America who's not on Facebook. So, and so yeah, the, I'm such a happy Chewbacca lady was the subject of a New York Times story. What struck me was the reaction from a lot of the Times readers, which is, this is not news. How dare you darken my doorstep with this crap? And I actually worry, I actually am sometimes a little serious about this. I worry that we... We imagine or hope that our news organizations and our morning news report is going to be a ranked uh, list of the seven most important things that happened on the planet yesterday. And that's never been what news is. News has always been about interesting kidnappings or uh, plucky uh, teenage girls swimming across Lake Ontario or whatever. And I was pretty happy the New York Times told me about Chewbacca Lady. I simply hope that our readers, as well as the practitioners of our craft, won't spend too much time jamming pickles up their asses because life is too short. (laughs) Chewbacca woman brought joy into our lives. Duly noted. If this party wants to win the next election is very simple. There'll be three issues. Jobs, jobs, and jobs. I'm going to watch this budget that's coming from the Liberal government, and I've promised this to the new finance minister who I met for the first time last week. I went to meet him and I say, listen, Bill, I don't like deficit spending. I'm going to be your worst nightmare. Paul, do we have to start taking Kevin O'Leary seriously now? Maybe not too seriously, but if he shows up at Conservative Party events and climbs up on the stage along with uh, recognized Conservative Party leadership candidates, given what's just happened in the United States, I think we need to cover his remarks, perhaps with an appropriate level of skepticism. You know, I I, I don't think that you can ignore someone out of a sort of distaste for what a fatuous blowhard they are. Certainly he would qualify, but I don't think we should be in the business of declaring who is and who is not a fatuous blowhard. You allude to Trump there, and I'm really worried about the very slippery slope between saying, look, this is news, we got to cover it, he's going to get up on the stage at conservative events, he, he, you know, if he does make a bid for leadership of conservative party, we got to cover it, that's our job, and what's happened in the States, which is we must just drown the country in excessive coverage of every noise this idiot makes because people absolutely love to hear about this person. And, you know, O'Leary himself has been just absolutely blunt and transparent about the genius of Trump and getting hundreds of millions of dollars in free press, which he obviously is very skilled at doing. And I think that we have no defense against that sort of thing. Like, I feel like the Canadian media will cover every crazy thing he's going to say. So far, I don't think that we have gone down the rabbit hole that uh, certainly CNN has gone down with Trump. You know, I think I can count, at least on the fingers of both hands, the numbers of news stories I've read about Kevin O'Leary. But he's not in yet. My strong hunch is that he won't get in. Yeah. I mean, what did you think of that John Iveson piece in the Post where he's reporting on an event that took place at, what is it, the Post Media Center, that their headquarters. The whole thing felt very much like a stage-managed piece of kind of pre-written call of John Iveson. You know, you can have the story and, and here it is. And the, it was just sort of an uncritical and and maybe even fawning piece of... Uh, of reporting that suggested that this guy's here now. Yeah, um, that is one of the things that Iveson does, not to fawn, but to hear out politicians, certainly including the conservatives when they were in power, and to report what they're up to. It's not that- To come dissimilar. when he has beckoned, to, to do as he is expected to do. Well, access journalism involves trading as a, a measure of skepticism for a measure of access. I've done it. 
Bob Fife is uh, rampaging across the front page of the globe day after day after day with variations on that. It has its value. I think sophisticated readers, you know, know what it is. Frankly, I hope I can get some of that sweet, sweet access action at the star and put the fight to Bob Fife. You know, we'll see how that works out. And, now I get this higher. Now I understand what's happening. <laughs> but um, I'm struck by O'Leary's sense of himself. If he is Bill Morneau's worst nightmare, then Bill Morneau is going through the easiest ride of any finance minister since Confederation right now. Because he's not doing a thing except waving his jaw to make life hard for the finance minister. Uh, Kevin O'Leary thinks he's someone's worst nightmare. I th- I, my hunch is that Bill Morneau has already forgotten the conversation. Enough of this garbage. Let's talk about opera. Okay. Do you want to like run through this one? I actually even forget which opera was being performed at the Canadian Opera Company, but uh, it was Rossini, therefore usually fairly slight and uh, tuneful, but not that uh, significant. And uh, the Canadian Opera Company decided they would do up a aggressively modernist, confrontational, in-your-face production of Rossini. My friend Arthur Captanus, who was at the Montreal Gazette when I started back in the late 80s and is still writing about classical music, wrote a classic Arthur Captanus review of the thing and kind of made gentle fun of all of this overwrought nonsense. Frankly, it was not anywhere close to the harshest review I've ever read. But apparently the Canadian Opera Company wrote to the National Post with some trivial factual concerns that would have been easily fixed. The Post pulled the review online. Uh, It had never appeared in print. It had still not gone back online two weeks later. Arthur at some point decided he was no longer welcome. He announced to the Post that he was no longer going to send them freelance music reviews. And then he sent his review to an online classical music website who ran it as the spiked review of the controversial Arthur Captanus and much uh, drama ensued, frankly, more than had been at the opera. Um, The COC, I think reasonably, emailed their entire correspondence with the Post's uh, arts editor, to show that they had not at any point demanded that the review be taken down. But the damage was done. The Post looks cowed by an arts organization. The poor arts editor, you know, had a sense of humor about it on Twitter. He said, there I am under the thumb of big opera. The thing that stands out to me is the arts editor quickly apologizes for even carrying hot reviews of arts events uh, in the first place because they don't get a lot of eyeballs on the website. And secondly, all the way through this correspondence with the COC, he's uh, angling for complimentary tickets to the next performance of the opera. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Paul, we fell down on this one. People brought it to our attention just as it was happening and said, this is obviously something for Canada land. (laughs) And we did look into it. And I think we were too quick to turn away because once we established that the Canadian Opera Company had not, in fact, asked or really put any pressure on the Post to remove the review, that that was entirely the Post's doing, we said, okay, well, there's nothing to see here. And and had we looked a little bit closer, we would have reported what uh, actually the Washington Post reported. And then it was reprinted in the Toronto Star, which is sort of bizarre. It tells you something else about arts coverage in Canada that we <laughs> <laughs> that it made it that far. But it did become, I think, a, a really telling story, not just because, you know, Dustin Parks is the arts editor. He's been on Canada Land before in his previous life as a sports journalist. And they just sort of complained about the review without saying that it should be removed. And he said, oh, wow, I'll take it down immediately and wait until we have time to adjust it and put it back up again. And that's when your friend Arthur said, you know, just forget about the whole thing. What it tells us something about arts coverage, you know, beyond the complimentary ticket aspect of this is that Dustin 
explained to the opera company, as you mentioned, he said, I really hate running reviews for performing arts. They simply get no attention online and almost always end up as our poorest performing pieces of digital content. On the other hand, I really want to give attention to performing arts, especially for the best stuff this country is producing. I think this has been the problem with Canadian arts coverage for a long time is that we can't make up our minds whether our role in the media is to review this stuff and provide critical discourse about our cultural institutions and about operas and movies and plays and everything that we make here in this country, or if we are in some cheerleading capacity trying to like, God damn it, Canadians, go check out your own operas and symphonies and, and films because Canadians don't really do that very much. Yeah. We haven't solved that identity crisis. I think it's always been true that uh, most people don't give a rat's ass what got played at the symphony last night or uh, was the soprano up to snuff uh, at, at the opera company or or even did Rush play uh, Red Barchetta last night at the arena? Like, you know, I suspect that these are niche questions even when the band in question is Rush or Diana Krall or you'd never believe it reading my Twitter feed, but I suspect most people don't even care about Drake. But I don't think that means that it's useless to write those reviews. First of all, because it allows you to treat this the way a journalist would treat something, you know, with some level of independent judgment, it keeps you away from cheerleading. Secondly, the tiny fraction of your readership that does read this stuff is so grateful it's there. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Western Ontario, I was just an incredible jazz head. And my, my only real way of knowing what was going on in Toronto, the capital of jazz in Canada, was to read Mark Miller in the Globe and Mail. And Mark was not angling for comps. He was trying, he was writing some pretty uh, incisive and thoughtful and sometimes very uh, tough reviews of the best jazz musicians that they went through Toronto. And it was my only window into that world. And probably the number of readers of the Globe and Mail who cared would have been numbered in the, in the small number of thousands out of 300,000 who were buying the paper. But if you get rid of Mark Miller, which they did, if you get rid of your classical critic, which they eventually, for the most part, have done, if you get rid of your court reporter, if you close your parliamentary bureau, after a while, there's a reason why no one's buying the newspaper, because there's nothing in it. I hear you, but I still feel like you're hearkening back to a conception of the newspaper as like, is something in here for everybody. There's a horoscope, there's a comic for the kids, there's a, a recipe, there's the political coverage where the newspaper thought this is all of the information that your family needs. And it's telling to me that where this controversy over opera got hashed out was on a specific classical music blog that specializes in that. People who have niche interests have niche sites, they have niche communities, they have niche conversations. And I, I don't know that papers... I don't know, is there a role for that, just like the general interest one-stop shop for, for your daily information? Well, I mean, I certainly take your point. With the collapse of almost every advertising market, whether or not it, there's a, a platonic ideal role for a newspaper that offers all this thing, there's just some, there's no money to pay for it. I get that. I'm not surprised when uh, papers lay off their critics. But, you know, there's something for every everybody... If you decide that you're not going to do that, then your next level that you reach is where the test is, nothing gets into our damn paper unless it's for everybody. We mm -hmm. actually don't cover quirky things. We don't cover yeah. little out-of-the-way stories. And frankly, the number of things that are for everybody is vanishingly small and pretty boring because everybody already knows about it. And so you, you just end up saying, well, the prime minister's at uh, the G7 summit and you don't cover arms sales to the Saudis because, well, that's a kind of a quirky little story, really. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> All I, think right. we should, I think we should have a lot of quirky stories. <laughs> and that's why we need to keep doing opera reviews. <laughs> or, Paul, yep. have they gotten to you too? Are you in the pocket of big opera? Paul Wells, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always reach me. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com and we are on Twitter at Canada Land. Paul, where can people find you? Inkless PW on Twitter and not on Facebook. But soon at the Toronto Star. Oh, hey, I forgot all about that. (laughs) (laughs) Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land will be out on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. I make this show with Kevin Sexton. Russell Gregg handles our radio syndication to community and campus stations across this country. We give it to them for free and Russell helps us do that. Thank you to him. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.